Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Harvard Divinity School. I am David Hinton, the Dean of the Divinity School, and it's wonderful to see you. Um, it's a particular pleasure during our bicentennial year to host this gathering of distinguished scholars and leading activists whose work on humanitarian initiatives makes a difference in the lives of people around the world. I'd like to begin this evening by saying uh, special thanks to uh, my colleague, Professor Diane Moore, to the staff of the Religious Literacy Project, to our um, dear colleague, uh, Professor Stephen Prothero, um, for organizing this important symposium. The second in a series of four that comprised the Religious <laughs> Literacy and the Professions Initiative. Um, we had the first one uh, on, um, uh, on journalism uh, just before the winter break. We also owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to our alum, Bruce McEver, who is funding this series and who unfortunately could not be with us tonight. Thanks too to those who reviewed and responded to the preliminary findings of a research project on religious literacy and local humanitarian leadership, to Oxfam for the privilege of collaborating with them on this project, and finally to the Luce Foundation whose generous support makes this uh, research possible. So thank uh, everyone for your contribution. Like all of you, I'm anxious to hear from our uh, uh, plenary panel, and you'll be glad to get rid of this accent. But first, um, I'd like to say a few words about why we're here and, our, and the role I believe that HTS can play in advancing your work. I know that many of you spend your days trying to meet the most urgent human needs, and some of you may wonder whether it's worth it to take time out to talk about religion and humanitarian crises, and others may wonder why we didn't simply live stream the conference online rather than bringing you from various parts of uh, the country and the world. To the first group, I would paraphrase um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, author of Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence, who said that religion is a great power. Its impact can be constructive or destructive. And, we'll find, and we think you'll find that a day um, uh, spent thinking about its role in the work that you do is time well spent, and, and I hope that is the case. To the second group, those who would be rather with their laptops in some cozy bar somewhere in County Donegal, um, I say that I couldn't agree more about the power and potential of digital platforms for religious education. Professor Moore um, just served as head of an online course on the scriptures of the world's major religious traditions that drew over 130,000 participants from over 150 countries. And as I'm sure you all know, the Religious Literacy Project's website is a terrific resource. But at the same time, we have a saying here at HDS, reality is not virtual. The best way to form lasting relationships with people whose experience and perspectives are different from our own is to be in the same place with them. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. And that's why I've made it a priority throughout my time as dean to use the school's convening power to bring practitioners like you together with some of the world's leading scholars of religion. My hope <laughs> is that we'll all come away with an understanding of the issues on the docket that we wouldn't have if we were simply sitting in front of our laptops. And it's important that we do, because as globalization brings the world closer together, it also offers a prospect of unprecedented humanitarian crises, stemming from violent conflicts, climate change, poverty and disease, from refugees fleeing the war in Syria to victims of the Ebola and HIV epidemics in Africa. The case studies addressed in tomorrow's four panels provide sobering examples of all these challenges. Knowledge of religion has never been more critical to the effort to address these crises. Take the 2015 outbreak of Ebola in West Africa as an example. 
faith-inspired organizations and scholars of religion were the first to recognize that the disease was spread through burial rituals that involved the handling of infected bodies. A deep understanding of the religious landscape then is not only valuable, but really necessary for those working to control the virus. Moreover, knowledge of religion also gives the leaders access to a vocabulary that engenders trust in faith communities, which facilitates efforts to change behavior and keep uh, Ebola in check. So I think you'll encounter many more examples like this during the discussions this evening and tomorrow. The bottom line is that an understanding of the beliefs and rituals that shape the lives of people all over the world makes more likely the success of any attempt to alleviate human suffering. Ignorance of those beliefs, rituals, and practices carries a heavy price, as we have seen time and again throughout history. So along those lines, my goal as dean is to make Harvard Divinity School a critical resource for religious literacy among professionals in all the fields, but particularly those who work uh, directly for a better world. We strive to do this by advancing the study of global religion through preeminent teaching and research and all of the major uh, traditions and their engagement with other fields of knowledge. We try to do it by initiating cross-disciplinary collaborations enhanced opportunities in field education and conferences like this that bring religious scholarship together with the world beyond our campus. We try to do it by transforming public understanding of religion through dialogue, learning, and reflection among leaders, students, and people of all faith traditions. And lastly, by preparing women and men who bring religious resources to bear on humanity's greatest challenges. Without these resources, as said recently by Sean Casey, an HDS alumnus who served as advisor to Secretary of State John Kerry for, for faith-based community initiatives, he said, you don't have to look that far into our past to see where we've paid a huge price for our failures to understand and our ignorance of lived religious traditions. So whatever your humanitarian goals are, they will probably bump up against religion at some point, and when they do, I hope that Harvard Divinity School will be here to help and to um, convene discussion. So thank you so much for being here. Special thank you to our uh, speakers tonight and tomorrow. And um, it's now my um, uh, pleasure to hand over to uh, my colleague, Dan Moore, who will uh, introduce the evening. So thank you so much and welcome. Thank you, David, and thank you all for being here. I want to welcome all of you here in the audience and also welcome our, our virtual attendees. It's great to um, have the opportunity to share the reflections and the event uh, with a wider audience. So um, again, look forward to hearing from those uh, virtually as well as those of you here. Tonight we're going to run the opportunity, we're going to have an opportunity to hear from our plenary speakers shortly. Um, and after that, we're going to have a, a, a discussion and a conversation. Um, but before that, I just want to kind of set the tone, if I, if I could, and help give a context for what brought us here this evening. So we know, I think, and hope we share the belief that religions have functioned throughout human history to inspire and justify the range of human agency from the heinous acts of horror to incredible heroic acts of compassion. Their influences remain potent here at the dawn of the 21st century. In spite of modern predictions that religious influences would steadily decline in concert with the rise of secular democracies and advances in science. 
Understanding these complex religious influences is a critical dimension of understanding modern human affairs across the full spectrum of endeavors in local, national, and global arenas. The Religious Literacy Project, and, and, and which I have the privilege of directing, and the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative is dedicated to enhancing religious literacy within the professions through a symposium series featuring collaborations, and this is the key, collaborations, among professionals, scholars of the profession, and religious studies scholars in the following four fields, journalism, humanitarian action, government, and business. As David mentioned, this entire initiative is funded by HDS alumnus Bruce McGever, and we're deeply grateful for his vision and support. The centrality of collaboration that is part at the heart of the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative is especially pronounced in this symposium and the related loose-funded research project that David referenced. Thanks to the generous support of the Henry Luce Foundation, the Religious Literacy Project has the privilege of partnering with Oxfam to explore how secular and faith-based humanitarian aid agencies understand and engage religion in their work, especially as it relates to the centrality of promoting local humanitarian leadership. Part of the grant enabled us to convene a meeting with leading scholars and practitioners representing both faith-inspired and secular humanitarian action agencies to review the preliminary findings of our research. So it was the loose grant combined with Bruce McGever's gift that allowed us to gather the incredible array of scholars and practitioners from around the world to both respond to the preliminary draft of our research proposal, uh, which we did all day today, in robust and generative conversations across the street at the Center for the Study of World Religions, and to share reflections on their work in this public symposium. So in addition to thanking our funders, I want to thank each and every one of our experts who have taken the time to be with us, to share their expertise, and to engage in these conversations. We have, all of us have important perspectives to share and much to learn from one another about the complex intersections of religion and effective humanitarian action. I especially want to thank Judy Beals of Oxfam, whose vision and energy provided the foundation for this gathering, Toby Volkman of the Luce Foundation for her generous guidance and support, Elena Fidian Cosmier, who has been an invaluable uh, um, consultant for us on this project, my now dear friend, Tara Gingrich of Oxfam, who is the lead scholar for the research project, and our uh, assistants, our research assistants, Rob Broderick and Car uh, Carly um, Berriant, for their brilliant research, and also for the background for all of this, uh, Lauren Kirby and Sarah Ben Levy-Brightman, who have done all the organization behind the scenes to make the symposium and the workshop possible. So can we please give a hand to all of those people? I also just want to say briefly the kind of frameworks and the foundations that we at the Religious Literacy Project uh, promote and the foundations for our conversations these next, over these two days. So the assumptions we bring for the Religious Literacy Project is that there's a widespread illiteracy about religion that spans the globe, and that that illiteracy has significant consequences. The most significant of them are the civic consequences, that a lack of 
deep understanding about the complexities of religion, uh, fuel prejudice and bigotry, and hinder cooperative endeavors in local, national, and global arenas. And we believe through the Religious Literacy Project that better understanding through a wide range of vehicles, better understanding of religion won't diminish um, the negative consequences of illiteracy, but it will definitely um, uh, diminish the, the power of those negative consequences. So symposia like this help us shape those frameworks. And then there are four fundamental tenets of, of, of way to think about religion that we also want to promote and just want to lay out there for our conversation and consideration throughout the two days of our, of our time together. The first is that there's a distinction between a devotional assertion about a religion, religious belief or perspective and the study or engagement of diverse devotional expressions, which is the framework of a religious studies um, uh, understanding. And that, again, is the work that we here at Harvard are doing and that we are engaged with with the symposia series and certainly the way we think about it in relationship to the work around humanitarian action. The distinction doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It just recognizes the importance of that distinction, which we will uh, unfold as we engage in conversation. The second is that, and again, uh, it's self-evident and somewhat a truism, but religions are internally diverse. We have too many conversations about the way religions are represented as uniform uh, and static, and yet they are living traditions. They're diverse internally, and not just in terms of differences within sects of religion, Sunni, Shia, Methodist, Quaker, um, Shaivite, uh, uh, in, in context of Hindu traditions, but they're also diverse within particular communities. The diversity within communities, even um, religious communities themselves that are practicing within a particular location. Because again, religion is a living tradition. And the interpretive lens of how we understand religion is something that is dynamic and, and changing and diverse. The third tenet is that religions do evolve and change. They are historical um, responses to historical time periods and cultural contexts. And that evolution and change, again, is an important and dynamic part of a living tradition. And that understanding is an important one to re remember. And then finally, religions are embedded in all dimensions of human experience and not isolated in the way that we so often still consider religions to be, which is isolated in a private, so-called de private devotional sphere of belief and ritual practice. Religions impact cultures and are impacted by them. They infect and, and uh, shape cultures uh, along with many other uh, sources and provisions. So these basic assumptions about religion are, again, somewhat self-evident, but often not represented or reproduced. And so a fundamental part of what we're doing through the Religious Literacy Project and through this series is to help uh, reference and represent religions in those more complex ways, and then in the particular ways that they play out in relationship to the various professions that we're exploring. So with that basic framework, and again, thanks to all that have made this happen, I want to now turn the microphone over to my colleague, um, Steve Prothero, who has been a consultant for this entire series. And Steve is himself an accomplished religious studies scholar, someone who has, in many ways, both through his own personal devotion to working with a wide variety of groups outside of the academy, as well as his many publications has really advanced religious literacy in the public sphere 
in many critical and important ways. So it's been a privilege to partner with him in this symposium series, and I now turn the microphone over to him, who will introduce our speakers for tonight, and then we will finally hear from our plenary speakers. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, thank you, Diane Moore, um, for having me, and to David Hampton uh, for your leadership uh, with religious literacy. Uh, thanks as well to uh, to Bruce McEver. I'm sorry, Bruce uh, can't be here today, but we all uh, recognize his his generosity in this project. Um, almost uh, 20 years ago, I was part of a group with the Rockefeller Foundation that uh, came together a group of scholars of American religion, actually, to discuss what we might do to bring our academic expertise more out into uh, the open and to engage with publics outside of academic uh, publics. And together, we really fixated on this notion of religious literacy as something we might uniquely be able to offer to the public understanding of religion. Um, and I guess it was 10 years after that, my book, Religious Literacy, came out, and there I argued that religion matters, that Americans know almost nothing about it, and that our collective ignorance is a civic uh, problem, as Diane said, imperiling our democracy uh, at home by flooding the public space with uh, a lot of incorrect and often misleading claims about Christianity, the Bible, and the world's religions, uh, but also imperiling um, the capacity of Americans to act effectively abroad by leaving us unprepared to understand a furiously um, religious world. Some have read uh, my work as arguing for a kind of piecemeal knowledge of delivering religion in sound bites and um, numbers, the seven sacraments of Catholicism, the five pillars of Islam, things like that, um, the three persons of the Trinity you might also have heard of, um, but I don't believe religious literacy can be reduced to knowing and curating such facts. Like many forms of literacy, uh, religious literacy is, in my view, a skill, in this case, the ability to engage in public conversations about religion and then to translate uh, those conversations into action. This ability, as I see it, rests on four things. One is, obviously, knowledge about the world's religions, basic understanding. Uh, about Islam or Confucianism. Uh, then uh, empathetic understanding that attempts to, uh, to bracket at least for a time one's own particular uh, religious or non-religious views in order to get inside the head or inside the experience as, as much as possible of others. Uh, third, uh, critical engagement that um, doesn't simply look for the best in the religious traditions, but uh, sees both the negatives and the positives, as we heard Diane say, viewing this power of religion as a power which can do great uh, evil and also great good. And then um, fourth, a comparative perspective that tries to understand religious traditions in conversation uh, with one another, appreciating the ways in which they uh, they operate under um, some similar and also different uh, categories. In the classroom, religious studies professors like myself try to uh, teach uh, this knowledge and these skills and sensibilities, but in many 
respects religious literacy like language itself is a practice which is only really present when it is put to use in what uh, we in academia sometimes refer to as the real world, um, in journalism, in uh, business, in government, and in the case of this uh, symposium, in humanitarian um, action. I am delighted and eager to hear tonight and tomorrow from this very impressive group of practitioners and scholars of humanitarian um, aid and humanitarian work, what sort of religious literacy is needed in this kind of work? What do human humanitarian actors need to know about the world's religions in order to do their jobs? What kinds of skills and sensibilities are required? How can academics help them in this important uh, work? More specifically, I am keen to hear about the relationship between humanitarian aid and religious understanding in an era in which so many countries, including the United States and the UK, seem to be turning inward. One dominant way of thinking about the world's religions is to see them as dangerous and even violent. And in this respect, the new atheists as well as ISIS have won, um, if that is indeed how we view religion. But the humanitarian workers and scholars assembled here remind us as well that while religion is a force for evil in the world, it is also a force for good. In fact, as Aza Karam has written, religions are the oldest social service providers known to humankind, the world's first development actors, and even architects of domestic and foreign policy. As we engage with our panelists tonight and tomorrow, I hope we will all think together about the roles religious actors, religious institutions, religious ideas, religious practices have played in humanitarian crises around the world. What roles, if any, did they play in bringing these crises about, in making them worse, in making them better? Where have misunderstandings of religion, which is to say religious illiteracy, played a role? How might such misunderstandings be put to rest? I'm eager as well to learn how religion is seen inside places like the United Nations and inside both secular and faith-based NGOs. What kinds of training in religious studies do humanitarian aid workers receive today? Is there any sort of training that would be more effective? As you can see, I have more questions than answers, which is part of why I'm delighted to be here. So perhaps now is the time to introduce our um, distinguished speakers for this evening. Um, Aza Karam is a senior advisor on culture and social development at the United Nations Population Fund, where she is a leading voice in efforts to make human development work more attentive to religion. Prior to joining the uh, United Nations Population Fund, she worked for the World Conference of Religions for Peace, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, and the United Nations Development Program, among other organizations. She was born in Egypt and grew up as the daughter of an Egyptian diplomat in countries around the world, eventually earning a doctorate in international relations from the University of Amsterdam. She later taught at a number of universities and has published widely on international political dynamics, including democratization, human rights, women and religion, and religion and development. Her most recent books, of which I believe there are six, if I remember, or some so. <laughs> oh, no, I, have, I have many more paragraphs to go. <laughs> many more paragraphs. 
Um, her most recent books are Religion and Development Post-2015 and Religion, Development, and the United Nations. She wanted me to say a lot more, but I will say. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair um, Adger is director of the Institute for Global Health and Development at uh, Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh. And uh, he tells me he also spends a few weeks a year as professor of population and family health um, at Columbia. He has worked in the field of health and development for over 30 years in Scotland, in uh, Malawi, in uh, England, and the United States. He has consulted in such agency as, agencies as UNICEF, World Vision, Save uh, the Children. He's active in researching how local faith communities mobilize to do humanitarian work. He has also written widely on refugees and on the effectiveness of humanitarian interventions. The author of over 100 scholarly pu uh, publications, his most recent book is called Faith, Secularism, and Humanitarian Engagement. Rudomar Bueno de Faria is the uh, World Council of Churches representative to the UN, where he represents the uh, WCC on a variety of UN advisory bodies and working groups. He's also the coordinator of the UN Ecumenical Office in New York City. He helps ecumenical uh, organizations and religious uh, leaders advocate on such issues as peace and security, gender, equality, economic and ecological justice, human rights, uh, and um, the environment. He's also a member of the steering committee of the World Bank Initiative, uh, Moral Imperative to End Extreme Poverty by uh, 2030. If you're interested in that, you can find him on YouTube. Please join me in welcoming these three uh, distinguished speakers. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stephen, and we elected that I would go first, and it, this is, suits me well because I want to begin with a stunning act of religious illiteracy, and I feel comfortable doing this because it was illiteracy uh, uh, demonstrated by myself um, <laughs> in Darfur in 2004, and this is an opening reflection uh, in, in uh, this book. Uh, I'm not going to read many of the things, but it's worth, I think, just spending three minutes reading this and then I want to elaborate a little on it. Uh, I was a UNICEF consultant working on uh, documenting uh, issues around uh, situation analysis for children in Darfur, uh, visiting uh, uh, both North and South, weren't able to get to, to uh, West Darfur, and I was in a refugee camp in El Fasha consulting with various stakeholders, and this was my day to consult with religious leaders. This meeting with sheikhs and umars packed into the meeting tent represented our commitment to engaging with the religious leaders on the question of the threats to the well-being of children in the camp and the appropriate means to ensure their protection. With consistency our goal, we ran through the framing questions we had used in previous meetings with other stakeholders. We were re uh, received respectfully and patiently. The usual list of concerns about food, shelter, health and education emerged articulated in terms familiar to all humanitarians and refugee populations. It had been a useful confirmatory meeting. It was nearly done. But my brief speech offering thanks for their time and insight prompted an unanticipated diversion from the planned agenda. The speaker rose to his feet and began with echoing thanks. However, before the interpreter had put this into words for me, I could sense a shift in tone and intensity. Murmurs and gestures signaled that the assembly was swiftly aligning itself with the man's sentiments. Uh, 
the translation remained tantalizingly a sentence or two behind the surging narrative. But it was clear that while my concern for children was appreciated, the Western lens through which I viewed childhood was not. I had introduced a Hawaja curriculum for children in activity centers. I had not valued the duties of children expected within Islam. I had not facilitated securing copies of the Quran to enable the proper upbringing of children. There was more animation in the meeting on this topic than any other, but insecure on this theme, I redoubled my attempts at thanks and I closed the discussion. I tried to explain that I was not responsible for the activity centers myself. I said that I didn't represent any particular humanitarian agency, but was rather working to highlight the needs of communities in Darfur to humanitarian agencies. But even as I spoke, this seemed a rather facile um, distinction. I was, after all, part of the humanitarian infrastructure. It was an infrastructure that provided no space for discussions of faith and religion. That was dangerous territory in Darfur, or indeed anywhere. The irony was that as a person of faith, I had accepted this position so readily and uncritically. The discussion with Sheikhs and Umars was duly recorded, but it did not significantly influence the formulation of our situation analysis, which saw religious concerns coded within a broader context of traditional culture. It was some time later I realized how Article 14 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child acknowledging the right of the child to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, and the rights and duties of the parents to provide direction to the child in the exercise of his or her right would have been a legitimate basis for engagement with their concerns. As it was, my uncritical acceptance of a secular humanitarian script had silenced their religious concerns, along with any other meaningful engagement with the perspective seeing children as members of local communities of faith. So I'm not proud of that moment, um, but it was a chance for reflection subsequently in a number of other instances where not only was there no space to discuss uh, that failure to really engage, but frankly I didn't discuss it with my UNICEF colleagues or my academic colleagues. It was sort of a personal reflection, but there was no space to share at that time. This is 2004, and maybe it has changed a little, a little since then. But that sense to which we were playing a game of consultation, I ticked the box of having spoken, but really I hadn't created any sort of meaningful space. And in fact, and I was a little bit worried when things are live streamed, the presumption was it was these bastards that were really causing the problem. It was this uh, medieval culture, it was this religion which was the driving force of the barbarity of Darfur. Uh, and that we needed to bring in modern structures, understandings of childhood, understandings of protection that were more civil. Of course, we didn't say it that way because it sounds grotesquely neocolonial if I do, but that was the world into which I felt I was technically working. So, uh, uh, Toby uh, Faultman is here from the Loose Foundation and, and the Loose Foundation also funded some work for us looking at these issues in different contexts, particularly uh, in uh, Jordan some time later. And I want to draw a little bit on that work, a little bit on the reflection of the book to make basically three major reflections on religious literacy and, and the correction or avoidance of such failure on my part or indeed the part of all of the students that I'd trained over 20 years for humanitarian work who I'd never equipped them to deal with that meeting in a more effective way. Um, before I do so, I want to get rid of some other issues as quickly as I can that I think are important. Um, 
I've learned partly through Elena um, Vidian Kazmia, who you mentioned, uh, it's become very popular to say we mustn't have binaries and, and, and so forth. I think that's become a, a phrase of 2016 uh, uh, 17. I realise I've, uh, this probably reflects my spiritual formation in a Methodist chapel in South Wales, that I'm uh, I'm full of trinities, and I, uh, many of my points uh, have, I have threes of them. So, for example, I've tried to document elsewhere uh, the processes by which um, uh, religion is taken out of the account, whether it's through privatisation, marginalisation, or instrumentalization. I've tried to depict the forces within humanitarianism that led from it being very much a religious enterprise to being marginal, uh, of being issues of professionalization, secularization, and globalization. I've even got a three of strategies for dealing with religion in the public space, one influenced by Habermas, in which sector language is privileged, one influenced by Charles Taylor, in which uh, both uh, religious and secular language is seen to have its own particularities and positionality, and they should be equivalent, not one privileged. And I have a special place for Cornell West, uh, something of a hero of mine, for the prophetic religious voice that stands outside of authority and castigates it for its tolerance of inequality and injustice. But that that's not a three I'm going to talk about. And neither am I going to talk about the three that argues the presumptions of our humanitarian colleagues, and it includes, of course, me, that essentially have made it difficult to engage with the religion uh, is the presumption of neutrality, which we've seen today is problematic, the presumption of modernity as a progressive agenda, which I think is also problematic, and above all, the presumption of power that basically we know best how things should be shaped. I'm not going to talk about any of those threes, although, of course, I've now talked about them. I want to talk about a final three, which I think for this audience is very important, and it's the three areas of debate or the three areas of academic development that I think are, are key. Uh, and the first, I'm not sure how many from this discipline will be here, but is really the management and development sciences. Um, to engage with local faith leadership or local faith communities is in much the same way, it's not completely the same way, as working with any small community-based organisations in what for humanitarian work is a global industry. And it is very difficult for a number of instances to secure effective local engagement. That disparity of power between the global and the local uh, makes things very challenging. Uh, and uh, I've already uh, praised very much uh, Oxfam for coming up with, I thought, by far the best title of any submission to the World Humanitarian Summit, which uh, was held in May uh, last year, which was seen as a potentially a groundbreaking opportunity, which was called uh, Turning the Humanitarian System on Its Head. And that was very much a recognition in terms of the localization agenda of the need to really not have things driven by uh, Geneva and New York, essentially, but by local concerns. And to be honest, to fix that is partly a technical fix. It's partly around funding cycles that aren't three months or six months or nine months, but is longer term. It's partly around contracts and financing and, and to work out how partnerships can be genuine and fluid over time rather than a local person being a contractor to fill out some tasks that I require them to do. It's around forms of ac accountability that don't necessarily involve Excel spreadsheets and log frames which are technical capacities of international organisations which are not the, the, the ballywick of, of local organisations. And frankly, in our IBID work, there were enough really good local organisations that just couldn't be bothered, for good reasons, to learn all of those skills, to say it's just too much trouble for us to jump through the hoops that you want us to, and we will continue with our work. But 
if we want to engage them effectively, there is a technical fix, there is a technical development agenda of how can big organisations, big global organisations, work more effectively with small local organisations. Now, as I say, that isn't uh, uniquely an issue around local faith organisations, although much of civil society in many contexts uh, clearly is significantly religious in, in its base. But I think we need practical answers. And Jean, who's here, Jean often gets nagged from the JLI to say, give us some practical ways of working. And that's important, but it's not enough on its own. So the second area, which we have touched on a little bit today, I've called social theory, political philosophy, uh, or political economy. And it's understanding why, why is it difficult for big organisations to work with smaller organisations, and particularly when those small organisations are motivated by, structured by, or reflecting uh, communities of faith. Um, and the whole idea of the secular religious divide and management of that, of seeking to problematise that, um, I think this is probably a context in which I can be fairly confident to say that we now understand that traditional understandings of religion, sorry, um, regular understandings of religion, are deeply Western colonial and problematic. And many of us do not realize the taken for granted categories of this being a religious organization or that being a religious act, of how presumptive it is of certain uh, Protestant Western colonial traditions. Um, equally, and perhaps even more worryingly, uh, a lack of understanding of secularism is commonly naive, presumptive, and lacking awareness, again, of its own particularity, as if it is a neutral frame. And again, I imagine this is an audience where it is not too difficult to suggest that although it has been hugely attractive to assume that it's a neutral frame to deal with plurality, uh, that presumption has increasingly broken down when, and, and I, I particularly valued the um, Islamic voice today that was articulated, that can see through principles and activities as again reflecting particular ideologies, particular understandings. Um, and, and bringing with them Western individualistic agendas. So both our concept of the secular and our concept of the, of the religious, I think, is, is, is challenged. We need to think this through. And the reason I talk about political economy is this is not just an act of social theory or social philosophy. It is around the exercise of power. So when the WH, so the World Humanitarian Summit, which met in, in May uh, last year, was around potentially turning the system on its head and, 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 and localization. I think there are many that recognize that as the promise of local organizations having a bigger voice became increasingly, there was momentum behind that, there was very discernible distrust and concern. I put neoliberal forces and state interests were mobilized. This is big business. This is this is statecraft. This is an international global security agenda. This is not just about my first discourse of development theory and managing properly. It's around we're dealing with areas of insecurity. We're dealing with, dealing with refugee flows. These are political matters. And the way that the humanitarian system is managed is politically motivated. And that reflects different understandings and the power of different actors um, that contend to uh, criticize some, uh, again, uh, with uh, the current presidential turn, I have to be very careful when I use neoliberal elites in Washington, New York, and London as a dismissive phrase for feel that, that, that there is some uh, genuine uh, academic and, and uh, truth value that those communities have brought. But I think it's also true to see that, they, that there are communities of vested interests 
that uh, northern players ha have benefited from that is uh, challenged by any notion of, of southern ownership. And faith-based organizations have freely bought into that. And for many faith-based organizations, government contracts are a very important part of their work. And their own understanding of their faith identity is shaped by that. And I shared with a few people this morning, for me, this is a, a, a vivid example. And I'll move on to my third and final point um, of the way that this, uh, the value of a secular frame, that the presumption of a secular frame is even attractive to faith-based organizations who find it difficult to talk about religion and in a way would rather not. And the example was colleagues who were mapping uh, social links and social resources uh, uh, amongst Kurdish and Yazidi uh, refugees in uh, northern, um, um, northern Iraq, in Kurdistan, particularly uh, those who'd experienced gender-based violence and seeking what are the resources that are available to you and what level of trust do you have in them. So it's a fascinating methodology looking uh, what institutions, what individuals, and what groups are there. Uh, and we found that, that the trust was somewhat different depending on what the concern was, who you would go to to share that information with. Uh, and the, the, the players that we were engaged with were somewhat pleased to see that religious actors, local religious institutions, were somewhat higher for some of these concerns uh, th th than others. But top of the list, very significantly, with 92% of respondents saying it was a key point, a, a key resource for them, was God. Now, that's not particularly remarkable, but what for me was remarkable was a little note that the faith-based organisation had put in the draft report, which highlighted it, said, this is very interesting. Can you think of a way that we can articulate this that would make it relevant to secular colleagues? So, as I said, the, the idea that... that just freely stated, oh, that's going to be challenging for secular organisations. We have an obligation to change the voice, to say, of all of the resources for a dispossessed people, the, th the one thing they could trust above the... And, and NGOs were in that list, World Vision and others were in that list and so on. Three times more trusted than World Vision was God. <laughs> and probably Save the Children and, 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 the UN, and the UN system. But we can't just simply state that. We have to code it. We have to translate it into something to make it safe for secular actors uh, to uh, uh, act upon, a sense of self-editing. Um, so my final point um, in terms of uh, it, we need engagement, I think, in, in this understanding of political economy and social theory. The third area that we've touched on a little bit today, um, and I was talking with Rob early on about this, uh, and for me is uh, of great importance, is that of engaging uh, theological imagination. Now, a couple of other people uh, here have heard me talk about this. But it seems to be very odd that we talk about the value of engaging with uh, uh, religious communities and understanding religious agendas without really having any expectation that there's a theological imagination of millennia and, and in terms of theological reflection that can help us with this, to help us engage with those communities, not in a manipulative way, but in a way that understands their experience. Um, uh, I think... Uh, one way of explaining this, and I would call it theology light, is simply to reflect, as we've done a little bit in this book, around notions of exile and notions of hospitality, which are deeply rich traditions within many religious traditions, which are hugely relevant to our understanding of burden sharing, which what we might call in secular language. And to really embrace those traditions and have an expectation that there's an imagination in poetry, there's an imagination in scripture that connects our humanitarian agendas and our humanitarian organisations uh, to those communities. Uh, I think there's a theology, I don't know if it's theology max, but I also suspect 
that beyond very obvious ideas about hospitality and, and, and exile, around the struggles of an oppressed people, around marginality, around identity, that there are insights from theologians in terms of the lived experience of suffering, notions of identity, hope, the formation of solidarity that we talked about, that can help Oxfam save the children and UNICEF to be able to imagine something of the experience of, of, of those that we're tr trying to seek, not just purely instrumental so we can use the right words, but so that our fairly bankrupt, fairly flat accounts of displacement can be inhabited with a richer imagination of suffering and response. Thank you. So, um, we agreed that I do follow, and um, uh, first of all, I would like to, to thank uh, Harvard Divinity School and Oxford America for the invitation to be part of these discussions. Uh, I want to start saying that I'm not a theologian, but I have uh, post-graduation studies in diaconia, and where I had the opportunity to glance to some theological learning. But uh, if I consider Dianis Moore's definition of uh, religious literacy, I can say that uh, I consider myself a religious literate person. What I want to share with you today is based on my 25 years experiences working with church-related and ecumenic organizations in humanitarian development and advocacy programs. Uh, I work for an international church-based humanitarian organization for over 18 years. I had the, the opportunity in these organizations to visit more than 80 countries, um, in, the in this case basically related to humanitarian action. And, um, and, but I also uh, lived in disaster-prone countries. And I have uh, myself experiences earthquakes, hurricanes, uh, civil war. And uh, somehow I was responding uh, from my position to this uh, humanitarian crisis representing a faith-based organizations. Um, I will read my document to, to avoid that I will spend more time provide, trying to give some examples and then I will have problems with the time. But um, I can, during the conversations, to substantiate some of my uh, comments and impressions about the work um, uh, for the statement that I, I, may, I, I may do. Uh, in doing my work, I faced many challenges. I saw many dichotomies in the humanitarian system in, within the faith-based community itself. But also I saw a lot of hope and compassion in the work that is delivered. I learned a lot from the different realities, different cultures, the different way how people perceive and deal with life. And they are quite different from time, from region to region and from community to community. I was also confronted with dilemma uh, working for a church-related uh, organization, humanitarian, international, and at the same time being questioned by my colleagues and even by the communities themselves to have a too much professional approach to humanitarian work because of the, all the standards, the uh, humanitarian principles, and so on. From experiences, all these events and situations, I could realize also the role, the behavior, and the attitudes of people and institutions. And that makes a big difference when you are talking about the intersection of religion and humanitarian action. 
I, I have seen that from UN, from government, from faith-based secular organizations. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I want to share with you. But uh, I will start first maybe trying to uh, emphasizing the, uh, that faith-based organization, and that was mentioned today during the day and recently now, uh, they have a long history in uh, providing support to affected, disaster affected communities, even before the, the United Nations, because the people, especially the millennials today, they believe that the world, world started 70 years ago when the UN was created. But uh, even before the creation of the UN, uh, faith-based communities have been providing support with their own resources even uh, to, to the affected populations and also uh, people that were, were fleeing their homes because of uh, ecological or climate or whatever economic reasons. But uh, in the discussion this afternoon, we also realized that, well, that comes back even a long time ago uh, when faith-based communities uh, were responding to epidemics and health crises. If you go back to the Byzantine uh, monasteries in the fourth and fifth centuries, they were providing support to people affected by epidemics, leprosy, and things like that. And at that time, we didn't have a UN or even the governments have not so been established at that time, nations. So uh, globally, it's estimated that uh, more than 80% of the people, they identify themselves with uh, a religious group. And that is uh, evidence-based, at least based on the, the uh, surveys people were doing in the communities. It's a truism that religious communities are capable of unparalleled uh, social mobilizations. As Aza always said, without counting the uh, kind of moral stunt they have. That could be for the worst or for the good. Um, they have uh, convening capacities inherent in raising and working with a legion of people that maybe not any other humanitarian organization or systems can mobilize. And uh, in times where the world is facing complex humanitarian crisis in a complex way, uh, we cannot uh, just uh, undermine, underestimate these capabilities existing, from, especially from faith-based organizations. Uh, local faith communities are among the first responders because they are, they are leaving the community. They are part of the disaster-affected population. In places of recurring disasters, they have uh, created resilience and learned how to support each other in, with the means they have available. Many disaster-affected people are per persons of faith, yet the predominantly secular humanitarian system that is established by governments and the UN, uh, often uh, overlooks these dimensions of their identity in the name of the impartiality and neutrality. And, um, and also they are not considering that the mobilizations, if you consider the, what the non-governmental and including the faith-based organizations mobilize in terms of resources in the humanitarian response is much bigger than the UN itself and the governments combined. So that information is not also. So uh, there is also a, a lack of, uh, uh, within this sector, especially the non-governmental sector, uh, of not knowing the, cap the potential and the power they have in terms of influencing the system. And uh, now that we are reflecting a growing awareness on the part of the government, the United Nations, on the, on the need to engage with religious actors, 
sometimes make them worry of engagement with religions. Local faith communities, FBOs and secular NGOs and international organizations and governmental actors often do not share sufficiently language and discourse on issues of mutual concern, especially in humanitarian response. Faith groups often do not care how they are perceived by these actors. And governments and secular organizations often do not understand and recognize where faith communities have distinctive and sometimes unique contributions to humanitarian action. Therefore, there is a need to examine these narratives and also uh, check, and that's the work that uh, Jim is trying to do, uh, the fact that uh, faith actors have a distinguished role in humanitarian action uh, to see if, uh, whether they are relevant for effective humanitarian response uh, and local uh, humanitarian leadership. That makes a difference that we need to, to evidentiate. In this context, also religious literacy is crucial to address elements that are important to identify these possible differences between the secular, governmental, and faith-based responses. As a cornerstone, the immense influence of the vast reach of faith leaders and communities have not been used at, uh, at full extent so far. Priorities of faith communities do not necessarily coincide with those of governments and secular international humanitarian organizations, especially with respect to, uh, respect to time scales. Faith communities often perceive the humanitarian uh, efforts oriented to community building, to long-term sustainable solutions, while governmental humanitarian response speeds are often dictated by short-term bureaucratic or political dynamics and secular NGOs, international ones, by time-limited programs, projects, and budgets. There is no engagement after that. Specialized humanitarian agencies and donor countries have devised more sophisticated ways of responding to humanitarian crisis that we, we saw, you are uh, facing this, but uh, that includes uh, some important elements uh, related to aid effectiveness that is important and accountability, especially to affected population. New tools, mechanisms, and strategies were developed in that direction, but not many, including the full participation of the affected, disaster-affected population, and also the uh, role of the uh, local leadership, and especially considering the role of religion in this equation. The intersection between religion, humanitarian action, and culture, and also tradition, has also created some conflicting uh, interpretation ar around humanitarian principles. Many religious leaders have used humanitarian crisis to do proselytism and evangelization. Religious conservative groups have taken advantage of humanitarian assistance to undermine community resilience, humanitarian principles, and psychosocial recovery, by supporting, for example, the idea that disasters are God's punishments to humanity, and we need to accept it. I saw that in Haiti in 2010. A lot of communities from the US going there, distributing Bibles and saying that. And people believing because they are people of faith. Interfaith dialogue and cooperation is also an important element to reach disaster-affected population, living in places where religious intolerance is a hindrance to deliver aid. However, it's important to differentiate also, and we discussed this afternoon as well, the interreligious dialogue with the diapraxis. Because uh, in the interreligious dialogues, we could have uh, these big discussions at global level, 
uh, with like-minded people, always the same, agreeing on everything, but at community level, that's not happening. So, uh, and when the uh, emergency strikes the communities, when we have these interfaith communities working together, that is the real cooperation and understanding what that means to be together to solve a common problem. Well, uh, I would like just to give some examples uh, from my perspective that could be used for making a compar comparison in terms of what is the distinctive role of faith-based humanitarian response and secular one. Uh, in the moment that a disaster strikes a community, people of faith immediately respond to save lives and help each other with the limited resources they have available. Understanding the humanitarian imper imperative, and you note that it's saving lives, is, uh, they uh, understand that as a compassion, compassionate actions to promote the God-given dignity to everyone. During an emergency, they often do not discriminate on any basis in the emergency crisis, in the saving lives. Um, and they are helping the neighbors independently if they are LGBT, if they are whatever. Um, on the other hand, I saw myself um, religious leaders discriminating on the basis of religion or confession when providing rehabilitation and reconstruction assistance to the disaster-affected populations. And they have prioritized those groups that are from the same faith, so the same family, as they said, and uh, alleging that, well, we do not have enough resources to provide to everyone. You need to prioritize. But the base for prioritizing is a discrimination based on religion. FBOs and religious leaders are in the front line of communities all over the world, and people look them for leaderships in times of, uh, in difficult times, especially when an emergency strikes. Many FBOs have strong links with this, with their communities, and consequently enjoy great levels of access, trust, and local knowledge. They are, in almost all humanitarian contexts, the key sources of social capital for life savings even before the governmental or the Red Cross or the Oxfam's and others made Sanson Frontier reach the communities, if you consider the humanitarian imperative uh, that's saving lives. Their networks reach deep into rural communities and can provide routine access to communities and mobilize volunteers when needed. The spiritual values of the FBOs, the faith-based organization, can foster a holistic approach that recognizes the multidimensional needs of individuals and communities. While, from my experience as international secular NGOs, focus on the immediate need because of the mandate, the resources they have, and so on. Secular and governmental organizations sometimes use faith leaders to just to have access and to be able to be present in the communities to, to, uh, to respond. But they do not want to further engagement with religious leaders because they are afraid of being uh, somehow uh, being conceived as uh, being impartial or neutral, not being impartial or neutral. Secular organizations, especially the international ones, and I would like to focus that more for the international ones based on my experiences working for one, often spend more time to figure out the best way to respond to the emergency and also how to connect with the communities and the remote areas and also with the leaderships, because we need to, you need to have a, a discussion in terms of how the response will be. Uh, 
except unless these organizations are multi-mandated. They are also working in development and advocacy, so they can stand in with the communities and they have established already work and they have a certain level of trust by the community leaders. And local FBOs, often they have a long-standing uh, cooperation and that's probably because uh, the constituency of these uh, international organizations obliges them to work with the churches or synagogues and mosques together and they need to establish these connections. But that is, makes a big difference in terms of uh, the humanitarian imperative. Faith communities may mobilize and organize people to engage in matters that are important for them, especially in safe life activities, as I mentioned. They represent horizontal structures in power in, community, in the community, counterbalancing the vertical power of governmental structures and also international NGOs. In many places, the faith communities have consciously assumed roles as uh, humanitarian agents. They did. We are humanitarian agents, and they are prepared for that. They are equipped with disaster preparedness, mechanisms, training, and so on. My experience is that secular organizations often do not have all these important connections prior to the emergency, and that makes much more difficult for them uh, to work on uh, the, the response. Also, FBOs have an additional responsibility to provide support to the disaster-affected population in a compassionate way, with love and non-discrimination. That's the basic of religions or faith-based organizations. A common value shared by disaster-affected people is hope. Faith leaders and FBOs have also a moral and a spiritual responsibility to uphold people's hope. This is more than, uh, more than the mere optimism and more than uh, ignoring the harsh realities they are facing. Hope is the ability they have as human beings to expect something else, that something better can happen than what they are seeing in that specific moment. In most of the cases, secular organizations are more pragmatic and results-oriented. Holding hope among the affected people is something they do not have as an objective per se. The emergency response programs from the secular and the specialized humanitarian organizations often do not consider the active role of community members, including faith leaders in the response itself. Most of the technical staff of is responsible to lead processes and activities without considering the active participation from my interaction with community religious leaders. So that makes a big difference when you are talking about uh, uh, the capacity of the community to recover from this trauma and everything. And I can give plenty of examples uh, what I saw. But there is, of course, challenges in, in this uh, uh, conversation and I would like to mention some of them. Governments and donors want more and more to work with organizations that have a strong institutional capacity to respond to an, uh, an emergency in an accountable and an efficient way, respecting timelines and complex reporting systems. On the other hand, local organizations have difficulties to incorporate accountability mechanisms in their work and face difficulties to put procedures for planning, monitoring, and reporting in place without mentioning in terms of the patriarchal structures in the communities that are undermining the role of women and uh, discriminating uh, people with uh, different uh, sexual orientations. Without talking about that, but that is also a problem. And uh, 
And also, uh, yeah, time. So uh, I think that uh, I don't want to go much uh, further in terms of how to share. I have a lot of examples to give. But just to say that um, uh, one of the, the, the problems, one of the challenges is the, uh, also in terms of the leadership, how we build uh, the right leadership in the, any organization is fundamental. You know that for uh, effective emergency response. And, um, and the big challenge is how to, to, to support as international organizations, secular organizations and governments, the local leadership in terms of that, and specifically the role of faith-based organizations that have this potential that I, I, I have mentioned before. before. So I, I will stop by here, and uh, we can explore more possibilities on that in our discussions uh, based on concrete examples. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I don't think I've got much left to say. Um, just to say that it's, it's a great honor to be here. Thank you very much uh, to Dean Hampton and Professor Diane Moore and uh, Professor Stephen Prothero and the team uh, at Harvard Divinity School and at Oxfam. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you tonight. And um, unbeknownst to her, but somebody who has influenced me greatly in my career and certainly in my academic career has been Professor Leila Ahmed who is sitting right there, um, and who actually, thanks to her writings, um, have, has started me on this path of interest in the intersection between human rights, particularly women's rights, um, religion, and governance. So, um, lovely to see you again, Professor. Uh, right, I uh, work in the United Nations, and I am not speaking on behalf of the United Nations. You did say this was webcast, I do wish to keep my job, so just to make sure that that disclaimer is well and clear. Um, I am speaking very much as a scholar of the UN system, particularly the approaches within the system of engaging with religions as an intergovernmental mechanism, and where that leaves many of our human rights uh, approaches and um, mandates uh, is something that I have been studying for many, many years. So this is what I am speaking from that basis. Um, I dare say that we, we are embarking upon a new phase within the UN where we have a, a very committed leadership uh, in general, a new leadership, and one that's actually quite committed to the issue of uh, interreligious and interfaith engagement. Uh, which is a very nice, healthy place to be and space to be, so we're looking forward to that. But again, the leadership speaks to the organization's uh, positions and standpoints. Um, one of the things that I think I'd, I'd appreciate being able to share with you here today is maybe some of the lessons that, that are petering through um, after many years of, of trying to engage. We've, we've moved 180 degrees in the UN system from we don't do religion, which I was told very clearly um, in 2004, Two, um, so who, who's, who, can you just give us a list of the religious leaders we need to engage, just invite to this meeting? Just give us the list. Um, which, which is, you know, it's, it's fine to be in that place after don't, not doing religion. But at the same time, the very simple question is, what do you need them for? What, why are they going to be there? Um, why religious leaders? 
brings up a very interesting dynamic then, which is purely the, the, the domain of where governments come. And I think where the UN has its strength is in being able to bring together 193 or 194 governments. It's also, guess what, the largest weakness. It is the Achilles heel to make sure that the 194 governments can see eye to eye, which of course never happens. But on the issue of religion, it's also one of the reasons why it, it's taken a long time to, to steward a journey internal to the UN system, which can bring along our board, our govern, our, my governing board is governments. So it's not that I speak to a group of very well-meaning philanthropists or specialists or whatever. I, when, when we present our program and what we will do or not do, it is to a huge amount of governments who then determine whether this is okay or not. So for the longest time, and I think the veteran of this particular um, struggle and success story is, is Catherine Marshall here with us today, who stewarded this process many years ago with uh, James Wolfenson uh, in the World Bank and can speak much more eloquently than I to what the governments did to them because they decided to do work on religious engagement with religious leaders. It's, uh, but it's actually thanks to that work that many of us have been able to build uh, the building blocks of how we can um, convince some of our governments, what we call the member states, how we can convince them that this work is important and relevant and will not be stepping on their toes as the foremost political authority uh, in the country. But now that this is, we've, like I said, we've gone 180 degrees, now it's, who, who can we invite? We need to make sure we have a religious, let's, let's create an interreligious leaders council um, to advise on this and this and that. Um, now that we're there, we, we, we have a bit of a disconnect between the world of development and humanitarian, the UN world of development and humanitarian engagement, and the UN world of political peace and security engagement. The UN world of political peace and security engagement is looking at the religious domain as indeed very critical, but critical because religion is the source of all evil, and particularly because religion is the source of violent extremism. So the entry point for that peace and security political nexus is how do we prevent or to the, to the credit of the UN system, it's the prevention of violent extremism as opposed to the countering of violence. And I'll explain in a second why those two are very critical, because they have a great deal to do with being able to, to appreciate the religious literacy uh, or religious illiteracy, as the case may be. But to, from, the, from the peace and security perspective, the, the notion has always been that we need to make sure, especially since September, uh, 11, 2001, we need to control this, this religion thing because it is causing plenty trouble. It is where violent extremism resides. Therefore, let us see how we can try to uh, counter or prevent this work. And you can already well imagine why that entry point can be a little bit problematic, and I'm being very diplomatic. But then imagine that, therefore, the way to counter this, because we are an intergovernmental mechanism, is to go to the governments and say, right, send us your religious leaders who are going to say the right message, that religion does not promote violence, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, whatever it is. Uh, please send us your okay group of religious leaders, because obviously the government isn't going to send the folks who are in opposition to it, are they? So therefore, we end up with a group of religious leaders to whom we give a very critical platform and a very critical sanctity and sanction and legitimacy within the United Nations system who are saying all the right things about why religion is peaceful, 
who are saying all the right things about climate change and you know the religions being the stewards of climate, the protectors of children, all the good safe stuff. But some of whom are also quite comfortable being rather openly homophobic, have very dubious positions on women's empowerment, women's rights, and these are the people to whom a platform and credibility and legitimacy that is international is being provided within the same system. Now we look to the other part of the UN system, which is the development and humanitarian side, where, to the uh, extreme um, surprise of some of my humanitarian colleagues, they realize that some of their oldest partners, whom they have been very busy coordinating in humanitarian uh, field contexts over so many years, have turned out to be religious. Gee, we did not know that World Vision was religious. <laughs> and Caritas, really? Um, so the, I, as some of my colleagues heard this earlier today, mapping during the World Humanitarian Summit the key non-governmental non humanitarian uh, providers, just for ourselves, because we had the ceremony where we had to say the commitments and who was going to be involved and who, you know which CEO would come and speak, and to there, and then they realized that good grief, um, a good 60% of those NGOs who were listed were faith-based organizations, but we never realized. Um, and now that we realize, can we please just skip that point and go back to safe, <laughs> safe spaces where we don't have to worry too much about there. But aren't these also the same guys who are busy building mosques and temples and whatever? How helpful is that? I don't know, you're the ones who coordinate them. How helpful is it? Um, but you, you do realize then that there is this wealth of knowledge and experience and partnering and outreach within the UN's humanitarian and development side, which is the bulk of where the UN, by the way, tends to do, uh, spend its money and do a lot of its advocacy work and so on and do its programming. The, the, the political side does not necessarily think that this development and humanitarian side has the right folks, religious folks, in mind. So the political side will, per definition, have to go through the governments. And those of us in the development and humanitarian side have that maneuverability and have had it for many years to go to the broader civic spaces where we can find not religious leaders only, but faith-based organizations who have been actively involved in their own country to provide the services as very articulately and eloquently um, laid out. Given we have this particular tension already in one entity, which is okay, massive, but we do, you can then begin to appreciate that it's, it's sometimes difficult to uh, engineer a conversation or a space where the understanding of religion becomes viewed in a, in a slightly more learned and systematic way. And given that we now have a very odd situation where precisely because of the platform being provided through the political space within the system, select religious groups, select religious representatives, select religious organizations now find that they have much more space to not only be hap happy to be viewed as, as equal partners shoulder to shoulder, but this is now an opportunity to also make the ask of this UN system that they haven't been able to make for many, many years because they were, they were not seen at all or they were seen as second-class citizens, but hey, here they are in the photo op with the Secretary General and all the ministers and prime ministers. It doesn't get any better than that. Time to make the asks to reform this UN system, which is also the root of a lot of evil around the world because the mantra and the, and the 
religion in the UN is that of human rights. So let's get these people to see some sense. Some human rights are okay, some are not. So let's use this pulpit to start also in some ways, and I'm being very uh, candid, dictating terms to some of the UN entities in terms of what they can do, what they should not do, and where and how they can do some of this work. And this is a phenomenon of the last three years. It was not there before. We never noticed, we never saw before that there would be, for lack of a better word, the audacity to make the claim against human rights, certain human rights, in a way that is quite open and public. And that's fine, it is fine that we have points of disagreement on many aspects of human rights. So we, and we've learned over the years that there will be some areas in which we will be able to work and negotiate a common ground and a common position with our faith-based actors. Indeed, we've used that argument significantly to convince our executives, including our governments, that this is the way to do things. We must work together and establish trust, and then we can see how we can work through the more problematic, thorny issues where we may not see eye to eye. What we did not anticipate was a situation in which we would be told by certain religious representatives, it's not only that we will not work with you on this issue in this country, but we will not work with you on this issue on which we see eye to eye if you're working on that other issue in that other country. Which is a position, by the way, that the US Congress adopted under the Bush administration with my agency, the United Nations Population Fund, some time ago. So it is a little bit ironic that we now find ourselves in this position, not my agency only, but several other UN development entities find themselves in this position. But, be, but this is not being told by a government. This is being told by a religious actor. And I think we need to, to appreciate that, that in our engagement, we have to then learn how to negotiate that particular dynamic so that it's therefore not, in this case, a matter of knowing what the religion is about, what the religious elements are about. It really is a matter of also being able to understand how we can negotiate politically and, and economically. Because in some of the partnerships that we were hoping and anticipating and will continue to plan for, it's also a transactional exchange. This religious entity will put forward some resources and the UN will put forward some resources and we will work together to realize. So when we lose or when we face the prospect of losing those resources, that's an economic transaction that's gone bad. It's not just a religious dynamic, it's not just a political dynamic. So the intersection between the religious, the political, and the social, and the economic become very much part of that religious literacy that is required. But it also becomes a literacy about, and what we've learned over the years, is we need to be clearer in our own mandate, why we, be, why we stick to human rights, what the human rights mandate is. It is not true that every single religious actor knows the human rights agenda or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights either. And it is not true that even some of the most ardent and well-spoken and very experienced religious actors know what the development dynamics are like, what that entails, what a political negotiation in the General Assembly or the Security Council will require. And that's a process of literacy that they need too. It is not a one-way path of us understanding what religion and how religion function, functions. It is also about us 
meeting one another in those literacy spaces which involve how we, as secular actors, understand our mandate and what it is, and how we operationalize that mandate with governments. And that's a particular government governance acumen that is also required. So the literacy, to be perfectly honest, is required on both sides. And that is when it can become most effective and powerful. Um, I wanted to, to share a couple of just passing thoughts with you, if you'll allow me, and I promise I'll shut up after that. Two things I see coming at us, those of us who've been working on religion in the UN system for some time, apart from the conditionality now being expressed about you can't work on this issue or we don't want to work with you if you work on that issue, um, is, the, is the fascinating world of um, social norms and behavioral change, which those of us who are like me, naive enough to assume that if you talk about social norms and behavioral change, you kind of have to talk about religion. Ain't that part of the whole process? You assume it is, I assumed it is. Turns out that there's this whole world of social norms and behavioral, indeed there's a science of uh, behavioral norms and social change that has not <coughs> thought at all, nor looked at the dynamic of religion or the relevance of religious thought and praxis to social norms and behavioral change. So we have schools of thought in the development world and in the humanitarian world who are very much focused on psychosocial dynamics, social norms, behavioral change, who don't see why religion should be in the picture. Which is kind of odd, but there you go. It's one of the dynamics. An emerging field that is similarly fascinating to me is the one where we now understand that, and, and Rudelmar highlighted this in the presentation, how critical um, the, the human resource capacity, volunteerism, is very much what religious communities bring to the table. So whether it's in the clinics or the schools or the hospitals or the nutrition uh, spots or the transportation that's, a, that's adjusted for communities, etc., cetera, um, this is all being staffed by volunteers. In many, many instances, it's volunteers. Um, so now the, the UN has sort of started to want to look at volunteerism in a way that's very systematic because it, guess what, when you're starting to lose uh, money is when you start looking at other ways of finding resources. So volunteerism, oh my heavens, let's look at this. Um, so yours truly puts a little finger up and says, how about uh, looking at the capacity that religious communities mobilize? Oh no, 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 that's not relevant. Uh, why is it not relevant? No, 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 no. We're talking about um, UN volunteers. We're talking about internships. We're talking about volunteers who are secular in every, in every other way, but we will not look at the religious spaces for volunteers. Same thing happens with youth. Big, big on youth. Huge engagement across the UN system on youth, right? They're the next big thing. It's where we realize that that's the future, da, 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 da. Um, religious youth, anybody? Religious, I mean, the largest, the largest communities of youth mobilization are religious in nature? No. <laughs> it's not quite said like that. It's said in very funny, yeah, we'll get to yeah, mm -hmm, Yes, but in the meantime, we shall look at everything under the sun and mobilize everything under the sun and speak to everybody under the sun except that particular community. So this is not a lack of evidence. This is not a lack of knowledge. This is not a lack of, these are people who are themselves going to religious services in their own communities regularly. Many of the, my colleagues who will refuse to see are people of faith too. 
there is in many respects almost a willful blindness to the notion of religious actors as the people we now need to have as equal partners and stand shoulder to shoulder with. This willful blindness is not being helped by two things. It is not being helped by ISIS and the likes of ISIS in many parts of the world. It is equally not being helped by those of us who insist on going on about religion and religious actors and religious knowledge because we present a threat. If you're already worried about those guys, you're not likely to want to open your heart and mind. In fact, you're determined not to in many instances. And I think we have to figure out a way of trying to change a particular mindset that people have. The latest and the last story I want to share and leave you with is um, the UN has these intergovernmental commissions on everything that we do. One of these is the Commission on Population and Development. The World Council of Churches stewarded a brilliant civil society statement to be presented at the Commission on Population and Development. The statement was shared across our partners, I promise it's the last thing, across our civil society partners, across our um, UN system agencies. And it's a beautiful statement. It's a, the first uh, written documentation that actually has a religious narrative supported, supportive of the most contentious terrain known to humankind, which is sexual and reproductive health and rights. That's the last bastion of our struggle and the litma, ultimate litmus test of liberalism, human rights, whatever, it's sexual reproductive health and rights. People talk, lots of religious people talk about how they're so pro-women and, and all about loving their sisters and whatnot, whatnot. But when it comes to sexual reproductive health and rights, you really see where people stand, where the gut instinct is. And here is a group of, is it 350 churches? At the World yeah. Council of Churches? Something like 500 million followers within those different? I, said, I always say half a billion. There you go. Um, <laughs> This community presents a statement to the governments that is incredibly supportive of sexual reproductive health and rights. I thought that this would be, that's it, come on, the ultimate statement to all my colleagues who are very, very determined not to see. Remarkable, the silence. The silence was truly, is truly deafening. Did you see that statement? Have you, did you read your emails? Deafening. Oh yeah, very good, really powerful. Mm. Move on. That requires more than religious literacy. That requires a mental, a mental shift. And how we can do that with religious literacy is definitely something we need, but we need to think of other ways in which we can do it. Thank you. Realizing we are up against the hour, but also want to at least get some questions on the table, but also remembering that we have a whole day tomorrow for conversation that will be continuing to engage these themes. So I'd like to suggest that we stay for another 10 minutes um, to engage questions or at least ask some questions, and then we will uh, retire to the reception, which is down the hall in the Braun Room, and we can continue our conversations there. So 
If we'd like to ask people to please um, identify yourselves if you'd like to raise a question. So please raise your hand and we'll wait for the microphone so that our uh, friends who are watching us virtually will also be able to hear. So please raise your hand if you're interested in uh, asking a question. And again, identify yourself and then please ask the question into the microphone. Judy, thank you. So um, here's my question. This is Judy Beals from Oxfam. I notice when we talk about religious literacy and humanitarian action that quickly the conversation turns to faith-based organizations or faith-inspired organizations versus secular ones, and which ones are doing it better and which ones are doing it worse and what's the risks and the up. And I have a working assumption that the real conversation is something different, that it's about lifting discourse within both and across both. So I wondered if you know if somebody could just reflect on what it you know is is religious literacy different inside a faith-based organization and a secular organization, and what it what is the real conversation we have to be having in order to change the discourse more broadly and take it out of what I what I think must be a false dichotomy of faith-based versus secular organizations. Anyone? Anyone of you? Um, I'll, I'll have a start. I mean, I, I think absolutely uh, I would agree and um, recently actually in a, a book that Elena has been uh, compiling looked at this false dichotomy in, in the way that you describe and, and I mentioned I think both terms in terms of secular could be problematized and, and also religious or, or faith-based. Notwithstanding that, I think uh, we touched a little, a, a little bit t today um, for me, go back to the example I started, it's about the permissions of how to talk about things within organisations. And frankly, there are some faith-based organisations where it's as difficult, if not more difficult, to talk about faith than others. Sometimes for some good external reasons in terms of wanting to be seen so, so impartial. I, I think, a bit like as I hinted at, I think the, the situation has changed a little within both sorts of organisations the last few years. It does feel that... Um, uh, the last five years, well, as, you, as you were saying, in terms of, of, of new positions and, and, and new opportunities, there are some spaces within organisations that are beginning to able to debate this. And for me, maybe it is a way out of it. I, I think it's about managing pluralism, really. I, I find that a useful phrase of whether you're a secular organisation or a faith-based organisation, both your staff, mm -hmm. but also the, the situations you're working in will be very diverse. Uh, and, and once we begin to presume that even our secular language actually reflects certain positionalities, that's a challenge for us all to think of how can we genuinely be open and fair and supportive of a very diverse group. So for me, that's one way into that dialogue that is more inclusive rather than creating a false dichotomy. And maybe uh, I, I have mentioned that in my comments in terms of uh, maybe highlighting some of the differences, but my intention is more in terms of how the communities of faith understand the, uh, the action from these international organizations, rather than if the international faith base are doing better than the secular ones. I think that the difference exists when it's governmental response uh, with non-governmental response. That we can make a very clear separation. But I think that it's important to, to have this dimension. And I would say that for faith-based organization, in most of the cases, I do not see differences between being faith-based, the international organizations, than the secular. Because uh, I work in faith-based organizations, 
and the people have much more resistance to work with faith communities than secular ones because they had some experiences, bad experiences, on theological differences that the faith-based actors do not care about that, uh, the, the secular, uh, secular one. But I agree with you, it's not about that, the, but it's important to have the perception of the, the people. And in the communities, that makes a difference because it's connected with their faith. A positive and negative as well, because some of them, okay, that is from my confession, my religion, so it's better, but that's something to further discuss. And uh, Judy, I think you may recall that when you and I had that conversation a long time ago, the point that um, I went on record, quote unquote, saying is that the, the need for engagement with religious actors and with religion and religions in general as discourse wasn't only because they're great service providers, they were exist that all the usual reasons we get, but actually because it then forces us to question how we do things, how we understand our own worldview has to come under critical introspection. So it's, it's a means to be a little bit more self-critical, to see the juxtapose. So the juxtaposition between the secular and the faith-based, unfortunately, till today, is done exactly along the lines. It's like, well, how we do things, how they do things. But it's never done with, well, what does that mean for us then? If this is the way that faith-based or faith-inspired organizations are delivering exactly the same services that we purport to deliver today, what, does, what can we learn from that? We never pose that question because the assumption is that at some point or other, they're gonna do things like us because ultimately we're doing the right things. So that, uh, I think a little bit of that arrogance is still very much inherent, at least within the international secular context. I can't speak for others. I, I just wanna add just one other comment about it. Uh, that at least in my framework and what we're trying to think about through the religious literacy project is religious literacy is also the capacity to discern the embedded ideology, religious ideologies, and I would say actually secular ideology, I would say worldviews of a culture that are functioning to shape a sense of choice, a sense of uh, value. So it's, it's, a, it's, big, it's bigger than a faith-based or are you religious or not. It's about an understanding of the power of religion in its explicit and more implicit ways. So I want to appreciate your, your question, Judy, because I think really that's, that's another dimension that's harder to get to and name, but is a really critical one. Okay, yes, back here. And maybe what we'll do now is maybe we'll take two or three questions and then um, close for, for the, uh, have our panelists respond to whatever makes sense, and then we'll again close and, and retire for the, for the reception for conversations individually. Hi, I'm Karen Feinberg, and I'm um, originally affiliated with the Graduate School of Education through a program called Risk and Prevention. Um, in the beginning part of my life's work, I actually started in faith-based organizations. Um, so, and for a number of years, and I've also been affiliated for about 12 years with the UN in a number of different ways. Um, so just to tell you a little story, um, uh, I haven't been so connected to faith-based organizations for several years, including my own, which is the Jewish community from which I was raised. Um, I started to peek back under the hood, um, if you will, and across other faith communities as well. Um, and this summer I met with a rabbi just to connect and um, I had met, just mentioned in passing that I was affiliated with the UN and I was gonna be at a conference and he could not, all of a sudden, this wall came up and he could not hear anything else about, he heard the story, 
And then we parted ways, and I came to a, a, a Sabbath dinner, and he hadn't seen me for a while, and he was surprised that I came in, and I could just feel that I wasn't Karen anymore. Karen, who's Jewish, actually, but Karen, who has an affiliation with the UN. Mm -hmm. And um, when the, that, um, when the, the US didn't, uh, you know, the whole situation with Israel, and I had lived in Israel, and I have very mixed feelings about Israel myself these days, um, but it's a complex picture. Um, and I was maybe gonna go that night to a Sabbath dinner, and they had written in their email, we're going to light a candle, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I cannot go because here I would be. And he, they, now I'm an emissary from the UN and I'm not, it's, Welcome. so it's just, it's a sad thing that, <clears throat> that uh, there's so many, it's such a meaty story, right? That has so many different implications mm -hmm. for myself as a person of faith who couldn't, who now feels weird about going in there. I'll go anyway, but I can tell He's, it, it changed the dynamics. Um, it, it's very complicated and a, a very rich story, but Great. it's not a question, but a story to elicit all of Great. these. Thank you, thank you. Um, let's, uh, again, get a few questions out here, here, and then Catherine, and then Nabuyuki at the end. We'll get all three, and then we'll, we'll close it for the evening. Thank you. Hi, my name's Sasha. I'm a student here at the Divinity School. <clears throat> I'm wondering, um, Envisioning this, not only this change in increased religious literacy, but also a mental shift within the UN system and also within the humanitarian sphere. I'm wondering if you have some ideas for how it will take place. If you were able to have a magic wand or really control, without, regardless of some of the key actors who may be resisting, how would it take place? Um, I'm thinking of the World Humanitarian Summit. I read about the um, agreed upon from the special session on religious engagement. And I noticed that while religious organizations made a lot of commitments, there were no commitments from the United Nations or from the greater humanitarian sphere regarding engaging with, with faith-based organizations. I'm, I'm just very curious to hear how you see this shift taking place. Great, thank you. Catherine? Uh, Catherine Marshall from Georgetown University. I have a question for the three of you. You've thought a great deal about the humanitarian system and you've been informed by the, this faith dimension. The challenge, is it broken or is it broke? Mm. Uh, what needs to happen to the humanitarian system? And I guess particularly, what does the faith dimension teach you about it? But more generally, if you could, if you could design it, what would you design and what have you learned? Great. And Nobuyuki here. Thank you. I'm Nobuyuki Asai from Sokoka International. Uh, I'm based in Japan. Uh, I agree uh, with the issue of hope and compassion, uh, which Ludelma mentioned. And in Japan, yeah, many religious organizations uh, provide the facilities as shelters when uh, huge disasters happen. And some researchers say that uh, the atmosphere of those uh, religious facilities were greatly more positive uh, if compared to other general facilities. But meanwhile, uh, and probably, yeah, the, the reason is uh, like uh, compassion or hope and so on. But meanwhile, uh, there are many religions or religious teachings, and uh, as you yourself mentioned, the, the negative aspect, uh, like a high case. So I wonder if 
Uh, you think that uh, it's universal, universal that uh, FBOs can inspire hope and compassion, or you mentioned it, it, uh, it just as a kind of expectation? Okay, great. Um, I'm going to ask you just to respond as briefly as possible. Not, I mean, the questions are I'll, profound ones, but let's go. I'll, I'll try <laughs> I think answer. they're ongoing, but if I may, I'll answer Sasha's and try and link it a little bit very quickly to something from for Catherine. So. Sasha, what I, the, the way I would respond in terms of how to get that, I mean, I'd link it to those three points that I, I think there are some very practical things mm -hmm. about way people communicate, about cluster meetings, about contracts, about partnering that can improve the likelihood of, of working. So I think that edges us forward. But as everyone has really pointed, I think there are things around political science, political economy, ab about the positions and people being aware of their positions, people's positions being challenged that need to be addressed and, and, and it's a political process around that, about strengthening uh, voices of, of uh, peripheral actors and, and, and challenging some of the, the hegemonic power of others, so complex things like that. But the third thing, and I, and I would put it back as a challenge to Harvard Divinity School really, but, but the, um, is that third thing about imagination? And, and I want to link it to, to Catherine's question really. So what in the, tr in the traditions of religion, uh, within scriptures but within practice, within the lived experience of a struggling community of, we'll talk about yesterday about the Dinka and, and, and you know, but for the grace of God or he walked every step of the way that I went. Uh, with, with, how can we use that language and that imagination uh, to create a bit of space to move forward in terms of this uh, diverse and plural word that, world that we're addressing. And, and rather than see that as an ancient tradition, to find it very much in the lived experience of communities that help us to understand how struggle, how identity uh, is formed. And then to link that to Catherine, at the meeting, I think you were there in New York, the, the moral imperative meeting, which was, in a sense was a very depressing meeting. Uh, particularly because a colleague, uh, not from the World Council, I don't think, but sh showed all of the geopolitical pressures, and, and this was in November, December, so there were other things that happened subsequently that made us even a bleaker picture of a loss of global solidarity, a, a fragmentation, political uncertainty. This is a fairly grim time, and at the moment, uh, I don't have a vision for this, the resuscitation of that global solidarity anytime soon around the formation of, of, of the UN. Very precious to me as it was. And I did feel at the end of that meeting something in the potential global solidarity of religious actors as some hope for communities to work together against fragmentation and political forces. And that might make me a very pinko, optimistic, religious liberal, I, I don't know. But it seems to me that that's one hope, and it's not that, that, that voluntarism and tradition replaces the UN system or anything like that at all, but there's some triage and support for the political, political as, as as budget shrinks, shrinks and shrinks, there's a recognition of the preciousness of that coordination, but, but not an understanding that that's gonna flex its muscles soon, and rather than have very powerful states uh, potentially dominating and, and humanitarian action being completely de determined by regional or national political interest. To see some of the bonds that connect us in, in this room globally as something that we can capitalise upon. So that's a very optimistic end, but it, it's about imagination. It, it's around the, the special session that we had and the prayers that were shared, Islamic, Buddhist singing and so on at the start of the World Humanitarian Summit was quite profound. Mm -hmm.
Uh, many actors there speaking of how that had, 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 had touched them. So that's, for me, a way of creating imagination and creating a bit of space for a humanitarian system that is, is perhaps smaller on the state side but understands better how to articulate with um, religious traditions and other civil society actors in a more integrated way. I, I would like just to, to try to very briefly to comment on the three interventions, including the one on the UN, the wall after you identify that you are with the UN. And I think that there is a reason for that. At least I saw that in many of the countries in the past, is the, what I mentioned before, the attitudes and behavior of people. UN staff in humanitarian action always were very prepotent, or you use this word, no, but uh, people that believed that they knew everything and they, arrogant, yeah and uh, trying to coordinate and doing messy work, actually. But that changed because they started leadership and training, and also the world is different today. Uh, in terms of the processes that could help, that, uh, in terms of how we will bring these issues, for me, it's important that we connect humanitarian action with the political process of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. If you will not do that, for, we cannot have the humanitarian as a silo that is not connected to these political processes. If we will be able to connect, maybe some changes will be helpful. And we need to take into account that there is a lot of discu uh, discussion at the UN level, different levels, in terms of the engagement with religious actors. And we need to be, and ASA is trying to do this work to, to avoid that everybody is going to different uh, directions and bringing different perceptions, but uh, uh, it's happening. But for me, what needs to change is that, every, that you stop thinking people as numbers and see them as human beings. And that's what you need to change. Otherwise, uh, and this no one left behind is something that you need to materialize. And in terms of humanitarian system, what needs to be changed? I think that, uh, again, I connect with this agenda for sustainable development, that you need to connect with that. But I think that's important that you revisit the humanitarian principles as well because that were produced in a world that is not as it's, it is today. So uh, maybe that will also help us to be more effective uh, revising the principles or updating the principles. Thank you very much. I just wanted also to thank uh, Karen for sharing that experience. Clearly here is a very good example of where someone who's very learned in their own religion will not and does not countenance another set of perspectives out there. Um, and I think this is a fundamental challenge that we're all facing. Um, and thank you very much for sharing. I get that a lot, by the way, um, as a Muslim from many other parts of the community. Um, uh, Sasha, if I had a magic wand, I would do, I would try to replicate something that I was very blessed to be part of uh, in the UN some years ago when the very first, um, celebration took place of the Interfaith Harmony Week that the UN has, which is the first week of February. Some years ago, a group of young people from different parts of the world um, came together. They were um, from different religions, but many of them were also human rights actors, uh, artists, uh, cultural, what we called cultural agents of change. Um, uh, some of them working in uh, government, some of them, it was just a, such a diverse group of young people. Incredibly uh, powerful moment when they all came together to make their own commitment to the United Nations ideals and values, as opposed to the United Nations structure, <laughs> what the United Nations stands for. And I think this was 
not only was it deeply inspirational, but it, it taught me that one of our biggest challenges is to continue to build bridges between the different sectors. The young people who were there came from religious movements, from religious communities and organizations, but they were not just from religious movements and organizations. There were others who were uh, governmental and non-government civic actors. Um, some of them were young entrepreneurs, they were um, uh, artists, etc. And I think it's precisely that connection that can happen across the different spheres and modes of existence and beings, and that bridge building between different communities that is very powerful. I want to second very strongly what, um, what Alistair and Rudelmar have highlighted, which is how critical it is to have the faith communities come together on agreed actions and plans and commitments and how powerful that can really be, especially for those of us who care about faith. Um, it isn't everybody who would have sensed that power uh, of the many meetings that we were at. But those who can see it are also those who are attuned. They've, they've adjusted, okay, in these in, you don't see that in today's radios, but in, you know, old day, remember, they used to have a dial in the radio which you had to adjust to get to the channel? Some of us adjust that to the faith wavelength. And once we do that, we're attuned to amazing amounts of vibrations and frequencies. And those of us who can do that have that capacity. But I think when we convene separately as religious actors, and then we have exactly the same kind of convening but with the secular actors, youth, women, um, we, we, we miss out on that catalytic moment of convergence, which, by the way, the United Nations was created to enable that convening across the different sectors. So I would want to see that happen. Please do not assume that the humanitarian system is broken and the development system is thriving. We're both <laughs> systems, um, if we can say that, are suffering greatly, and uh, root uh, of that suffering is the weakening of the nation state itself, and how that those forces which are no longer uh, the traditional forces as we understand them, governments versus non-governmental actors, we are talking about non-governmental actors today who are capable of dictating policies in ways that we have not seen for the last 75 years. And as long as that is the case, we will be confronted with some very serious challenges, both developmentally and um, humanitarian-wise. And until and unless we start engaging those non-governmental actors and building the bridges between them, we will not be able to rectify those systems. Thank you. Well, can we pause and just thank again our panelists for a wonderful beginning.